0: It isn't simply about hiring, you know, a few autistic people here or there, it's about how do we hire in general, how do we embrace all of these different brains that that, that we have and that we're going to continue to engage in our in our hiring processes. Um, it, it, it isn't about, if you like, hiring people we don't have, it's about embracing everybody, whether that's in hiring or, or whether that's, you know, internal to our organisations. <music>
1: We're Nick and Sonia, and this is Dyslexia Journey, where we help you support the dyslexic kid in your life.
2: All right. And today we are excited to welcome Ed Thompson, who is the author of the book, A Hidden Force Unlocking the the Potential of Neurodiversity at Work.
0: And again, I think that strength, sadly, can be a contextual challenge when it's not uh, understood and, and appreciated in interviews, for example, uh, where people can expect a certain type of answer, be a little thrown when they get a, a a very different type of answer. I think that's wrong. I think that should be you know embraced, but I think that's what happens. Uh, or in work, you know, where a a manager maybe expects a certain process to get from A to B, and actually, you know, what if this uh, individual doesn't want to start at A, they want to start at D? You know, come back the other way. I, I think the lesson is focusing on the result over the how as much as possible um, and letting different thinkers work in the way that suits them best to get there.
2: You know, in my day job, I'm a software engineer, and so I've worked in industry um, and gone through the hiring process um, as an individual. And I've also been a, a hiring manager um, and and an executive at at several different companies. and. Uh, as we've gotten more into dyslexia advocacy, I've started to question some of the um, hiring practices. Uh, but then reading your book really brought it into sort of stark, stark relief as to how really how how um, bad most of the hiring practices are. Like not to, not to sugarcoat it here, right? Um, uh, so you know things like the culture fit interview and and timed timed tests you know during a 20 minute interview or whatever um so do you want to you want to talk a little bit more about that sort of hiring in general and what we can uh what what the problems are and what we can uh do to change that
0: yeah and i i think i mean to some extent problems start right at the beginning because organizations often kind of trumpet their diversity and inclusive credentials but don't mention neurodiversity. And so I think there can be an issue simply in terms of attracting talent, where neurodivergent people think, well, you know, do they really want, do they really get people like me? Now, of course, candidate pools are neurodiverse, right? Humans are neurodiverse, so so are candidate pools. And of course, that's likely to include neurodivergent people. Um so you know, this is important. This isn't about sort of specific disability hiring uh, necessarily. Um it's important to think about these these processes. But we can simply exclude people by not making it look like we care about people like, uh, like them. When it comes to hiring specifically, um, I talk in the book, this idea of intentional hiring, that's not my invention. I think that's uh, something that uh, is a, a very kind of topical, uh, popular now approach in hiring, the idea of just really taking time to think about what are we trying to hire for what are the outcomes and then you know what are the skills experience that are going to make those outcomes most likely and how are we assessing for those and that sounds obvious but that's not what happens a lot of the time a lot of the time hiring i think can be lazy oh let's just reuse the job description from last time you know steve's leaving why don't we find another steve a lot of it is rapport based. You know, it's do we like this person? Hey, you know, team member, please interview this person. Tell me what you think. Oh, yeah. Good guy. OK, cool. You know, that stuff shouldn't happen, but it happens way more uh, than, than it should. And I think that can mean, you know, rapport, which shouldn't really be the key glue. in it team. Should be about, you know, skills and, and, and ability to execute is, is kind of given higher uh, weight. So this idea of intentional hiring, I think, really is the the foundation of it, and I think that then needs to be paired with some awareness of neurodiversity and awareness that a candidate pool is neurodiverse, and and, and making sure that that can go to things like you know checking biases uh, before an interview. So do you have a picture of a mental picture of a candidate? What does that look like? And are you genuinely open to somebody who presents completely differently could be in terms of their skin colour could be in terms of how they talk how they hold themselves uh, maybe they don't choose to speak uh, at all in the interview and communicate by by other means you know are we open to that if it's the best candidate um, and then as well some some uh, techniques that you know, we teach around how to ask questions inclusively how to optimize the experience for candidates and so on. That's something that neurodivergent people often describe as particularly stressful when they're kind of just left on the hook. They don't know what to expect. Classic example, we improve that for for neurodivergent people, we improve it for everybody. So look, you know, it's it's a bit it's a big topic. I, I don't think people should look at it and think that's so big, you know, we could never do anything about it. That's not true. The way that we approach it is very much, you know, making the people who are operating these processes realize how important it is and and really kind of empowering them and equipping them to to manage these processes every day in a way that just opens them up, you know, for the 100 percent and and not the 80 percent.
1: Yeah, you also discuss in the book, um, you know, the idea that it seems like a lot of the times people are looking for someone sort of kind of well-rounded almost too, which in a lot of cases with neurodiverse individuals, you know, dyslexics being one example, they might have very particular things that they are better at. And that that can be a great thing for a company to have someone who's really good at a particular thing, but then they might, you know, look weaker in a particular other area. So this is, remind. I, I'm just curious more about that. And then I'm wondering, sort of taking a step back even from hiring process, that perhaps their background in schooling might look a little different. Um, And then that's leading me just to think about a quick dip into schools and anything that you, any comments you would have around that as well.
0: The idea of the spiky profile is, is in strong kind of currency when it comes to neurodiversity. The idea, I suppose, that, you know, let's think there's maybe 10 or so kind of generic work skills, different types of communicating uh, and problem solving, being able to organise your work, time management—you know, these are things that kind of probably going to be helpful in any work context. And a generalist might be seven out of ten across the board, or have a reasonably kind of flat profile. There, there's nothing that's a major weakness, but there's nothing that's a really dramatic strength. A neurodivergent person might be the opposite; they might be ten for creative, right, as opposed to a six. I mean, that's a big jump. If you're 10 for creative, you can bring a lot to your team. But, you know, maybe there are three for time management rather than a seven. You know, maybe there are three for written communication. So I think that idea is something that we should acknowledge and we should embrace and we should embrace the value of, of somebody who's kind of capable across the board as well as the value of somebody who might be particularly strong uh in 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 some areas um and i you know i think that relates as well to um you know how we think about younger people as 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 they're growing up uh in schools and you know do we uh do we sort of slam them for you know their struggles or do we celebrate them for their strengths and and achievements uh, and i think that's i think that's really important
2: okay so um one other interesting aspect of your book is you talk about, um, sort of disability rights movement and how, um, the, the sort of, um, encouraging or recognizing neurodiversity in the workplace can to some extent come out of that. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, do you feel like, um, this sort of, uh, um, the emphasis of your, of your book, the, um, you know, sort of recognizing neurodivergence is more akin to sort of um, disability rights, or more a, a akin to sort of um, equal access for underrepresented minorities, or or something entirely different.
0: No, oh, it's, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's really important to acknowledge that as societies, we we only have some of these words, neurodiversity, and so on, and 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 this. Uh, newer but you know apparently correct understanding of human brains through if you like neurodiversity rights or, or, or disability rights and and I think you know that's uh the foundation of this you know long before I started working on this in, in, in the workplace and I think you know what uh greater inclusion at work is doing is advancing that cause and you know that cause continues and that cause continues across all different, you know, dimensions of society, including including work. So I think that context is, is really important. Um, to, to talk about work more specifically, um, the emergence of what I think of as the neurodiversity at work movement, so a lot of people talking about neurodiversity at work, came from some quite specific hiring programmes uh, in around 2015, 2016, 2017. And these were really hiring programmes looking to hire autistic tech workers, largely, that were very much from what I would think of as the disability hiring model. And I think the disability hiring model is to some extent, you know, how do we hire people who can bring value, but we do a pretty poor job of hiring otherwise. And I think that was the framework of these autism hiring programmes. And these autism hiring programmes got a lot of publicity because, Never before had people seen organizations, big organizations, say, you know, we actively want these neurodivergent skills and and not just for back office roles, you know, for for front office, highly rewarded uh, roles. And, and, you know, I think that got a lot of uh, prominence, press coverage, interest, and that started uh, a cycle where more and more people started disclosing. You know, we realized actually that organizations are neurodiverse anyway, uh, and so on. So. I think it's played that role, but I think also the emergence of enterprise resource groups and neurodiversity advocacy in these organisations and how obvious it is now that it isn't simply about hiring you know, a few autistic people here or there. It's about how do we hire in general, how do we embrace all of these different brains that, that, that we have and that we're going to continue to engage in our, in our hiring processes. Um, it 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 isn't about if you like hiring people we don't have. It's about embracing everybody, whether that's in hiring or or whether that's you know internal to our organisations.
1: Yeah, so I'm curious what how would you distil down some top tips for what companies can be doing to take advantage of this hidden force of neurodiversity? You know, whether that's a principle or a very specific thing. What are some top Things for them to consider doing.
0: Oh, it's a lot. I think I think recognizing how important it is to them, and there is all sorts of misconceptions here. The idea, you know, well, we don't have anybody like that here. This kind of thing, which obviously is is nonsense, and hopefully, I've uh, I, I've explained why. Uh, talking about it, I think, is is really important. Of course, that can start with leaders, but uh, anybody in the organization can can be a champion. Um, could talk about their own experiences, but can talk about just the importance of this in general. And and many times allies, I think, can play a a strong role here, too. Um, I think it's important here just to kind of take a tangent. Most organisations, and I mentioned HR priorities becoming CEO priorities. Most organisations are already committed to people, uh, well-being, belonging, diversity, diverse hiring and so on. They they realise those things are important. And I, and I think that commitment is genuine. I think what they haven't always realised is what a major missing piece neurodiversity is and how actually embracing neuroinclusion is a way to live into all of those promises and, and, and all of those um, commitments. I think you have to take steps, of course, to educate people, ensure resources are there. That's what we provide. We found 60 percent ish of our learners when we start don't really know what neurodiversity is, which I think is, you know, is a problem. Uh, and, and you could see that being a problem as a neurodivergent employee. And you know do I choose to disclose? Well, more than half the people don't even know what this is. So that's not a great start. So maybe I'll keep quiet. Um and I think ultimately it's about really, you know, seeing neuro inclusion as yes, an inclusion thing, but but also a ways of working thing and just building this into the fabric of, you know, how teams work and then ultimately how teams work at scale. And 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 I think it's not difficult to see that if you're an organization that can bring in different types of brains and then optimize their contribution, that's putting you in a pretty strong position in this very kind of competitive, fast moving 21st century.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, on the flip side of that, um, what are some pitfalls to avoid um, for companies?
0: Oh, there's. I mean, there's many, as I said, there's lots of misconceptions that, you know, prevent action. I mean, I, I mentioned just the, the idea that this doesn't have anything to do with you. It does. Uh, something we see organisations do quite a lot, which I don't think is that helpful, is kind of over-focusing on, on numbers. Um, the idea of diversity rather than inclusion. And I think um, as organisations report their diversity to uh, statistics, they sort of want to do that with this area too. And it's quite difficult. Uh, 90% of people typically don't choose to disclose uh, off the bat for all the reasons we've uh, discussed it's a very muddy picture so i think sort of expecting people to disclose as kind of stage one is is, is unrealistic and, and and the wrong thing to to pursue i think we want to create this environment that's neuro-inclusive and then a truism of that is that more people will then disclose because they feel comfortable so we have got to kind of don't want to put the cart before the horse um we've talked about kind of seeing this only as a hiring thing i think that's a a a sort of strategic mistake this is really about the organization that you are the teams that you are the leadership team that you are perhaps you know you do a little show of hands there in terms of how people would most like to communicate or or contribute to strategy you're going to get different answers you're going to start thinking gosh actually this is this relates to us as well Um, and then of course you know the classic diversity and inclusion thing of the, the sort of the one and done you know we'll get a speaker and we're good Well, it's better than nothing, but, you know, that's not really kind of changing the fabric of of the organization. So I would say, you know, do it, do it properly, and, and you'll be amply rewarded.
1: Yeah, I feel like overall you know, partly from your ideas and your organization. And, and then, like you said, the fact that there's at least some awareness already foundationally with companies, it sounds like the outlook's pretty good. Um, I'm just curious to hear, yeah, so, so you have more of the pulse on it here. Like, how do you feel like the outlook is for this, maybe even a time range? I don't know if that that's possible to predict um, in terms of things changing and shifting um, and more companies getting online for it. And perhaps even with dyslexia or dyslexic in- individuals specifically as well.
0: I believe in you know, the work that, that we're doing and, and what we're seeing. Um, I have seen the difference between the world in, say, 2017 and, and the world now. And, and I do think this is a, uh, uh, an improved world with, with, with more awareness and there's more organisations I could point to and say, I think that's an organisation that cares about this and you know is, is, is doing it properly. So I have an optimism based on that. Um, I would echo the concern that our speaker yesterday at our Optimize event uh, shared around the you know, demonization of some other minority groups at the moment because of the intersectional uh, you know, factors there. And I, th- I think that, you know, that's a, a, of course an issue uh, for some. But generally, I, I I try to be positive. I think you know, I, I I've seen the impact of this and how profound it is at an individual level, at an organizational level. Part of the book was sharing that and and saying, hey, look, what happens if we do this? Um, and I think I have a sort of entrepreneur's you know uh, optimism uh, to some extent as well that you know keeps me getting up and, and working on this um, every day. Of course, it needs everybody you know to be part of this as well and being a champion, being an ally is, is so important. We can spot this and I can write a book about it and we can project this into the world and be thought leaders as we are. But in every case, when we work with an organisation, somebody or, or a group of people have spotted this as an overlooked area themselves. It's not in their job title, but they've said, we want to do something about this. And, and you know they're the heroes as well. And you know if you're listening to this and you work in an organisation, you can be that person. Uh, too.
2: Yeah, I mean, it really is. Uh, and you lay this out really well in the book. It's it, it makes it so obvious that this really is win win for everyone. And so um, I think it's frustrating sometimes when we, you know, not not everyone sees how obvious that is. But, um, you know, it, it it's good to hear that that you feel like um, that you have a positive outlook and that that things are changing. Um, so I guess as we wrap up here, um, any, uh, any final thoughts? And then also, um, if you want to let our audience know a little bit about, um, what you do at Optimize and where people can find you online.
0: Yeah, again, well, thank you for having me. And it's a, a, a great conversation. And I, I suppose for final thoughts, you know, I always ask, you know, what can I do? Right. And, and I've kind of talked about being a champion, being an ally, uh, making the case for action here. I, I think you'd be surprised you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're passionate about this, you, you may feel, well, that nobody else cares about this in, in, in my team workplace. And, you know, I've been going on about 60% of people don't even know what it means. But actually there is this huge kind of latent affinity group or an even you know, latent demographic of neurodivergent people who don't want to share it. So what we've tended to see with organisations is, as people start to be allies and be champions, that latent interest, you know, starts to bubble up and surprise, surprise, the COO says, oh, I'm dyslexic, actually. And I've never told anybody, but I want this to be my big priority for 2024. And you know, suddenly you can't do things fast enough. So that's also part of my uh, optimism. Um, and I think also, you know, I don't labor this too much, but I think there's a lot you can do here without... Having that sort of territory where you have to talk about specific labels, specific identities, which I know people are uh, are uncomfortable with, just checking in in terms of well-being. You know, how are you doing today? And 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 kind of modelling that. Uh, well-being, peace on on, on yourself and and talking about how you're feeling, just talking about ways that you like to communicate, problem solve, work and so on, and and letting people share that maybe theirs are are different. These are all ways that we can, uh, in a sense, contribute to neuro-inclusion without feeling like we have to go on that kind of icy ground of, oh, you know, am I going to say the wrong thing? As far as us, yes, I've alluded to, uh, and obviously the, the book very much draws on uh, the experiences I've had building Optimize. So we are at Optimize.com, uptimi ecom and we train organizations uh, of all sizes. we worked with Accenture, IBM. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than them, but we've also worked with seven-person nonprofits as well. So uh, we work with all organizations to help you become more Neuroinclusive inclusive and, and, and see the benefits of that. Um, and you've also been kind enough to, to mention my book, of, of course, which came out earlier this year, A Hidden Force, Unlocking the Potential of Neurodiversity at Work, and that's available uh, online on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, and so on in, in, in some different formats.
2: All right. Well, Ed, thank you. Um, we really appreciate you coming on the show and um, sharing all this information with us
1: and for all the work you do on such an important issue
0: thank you for having me thank you
1: thank you